All right. Well, prophet, priest, and king. There were three major distinct offices among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we jump in here and start into the uh, nation of Israel and see the offices that God had to put um, put over the people of Israel. Three different offices. Number one, there was a prophet who spoke God's words to the people. Nathan was a prophet, for instance, when David was king. And he would come and say, thus says the Lord. And he's speaking God's words to the people. In a way, you could say he's representing God to the people. And then there was the priest. The priest served God in the tabernacle and later when it was built, the temple. And the priest would offer sacrifices and prayers and praises to God on behalf of the people. Abiathar was priest when David was king. Then there was um, uh, Aaron was the first priest. And then there was a whole line of priests descended from Aaron. And they had all these responsibilities so they could go in, offer the sacrifices in worship to God, the animals and the grain sacrifices, and they'd be put on the altar, on the fire, and they would burn up, and the smoke would go up as a sacrifice to God. And they would go in and represent the people, but the people couldn't come into God's presence by themselves. So that was the role of the priest. And in a way, they represented the people to God. Prophet, representing God to the people. Priest, representing the people to God. And then there was the king, who ruled over God's people uh, as God's representative. And that would be people like uh, King David uh, or King Solomon. Now, Christ fulfills those offices. He's a greater priest, a greater prophet, a greater king in several ways. He, uh, Just in general, and this is a summary of where we're going, as a prophet, Christ reveals God to us, and he speaks God's words to us, so he represents God to us. As a priest, he offers a sacrifice to God on our behalf, and he is himself the sacrifice instead of sacrificing animals. And then as a king, he rules over the church and over the universe. Now, that's a summary of the whole lesson today. But uh, we'll go on and break it down in, in more detail now. Uh, first, how is Christ a prophet? Well, we go back again to the Old Testament. Moses uh, was the first major prophet. And Moses predicted that sometime another prophet like himself would come. And this is a passage that is referred to again and again um, as people think about what is going on with the role of prophet in the Old Testament. Um, the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 18:15. the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now, as people look forward from Moses, then they're expecting there are going to be other prophets. And in fact, there were other prophets, but it looks like this is foreshadowing or foretelling a single prophet who will be like Moses and perhaps even be greater than Moses. So there's a forward-looking expectation um, when we get to the New Testament, this isn't a prime, it isn't primarily a word that's used of Jesus, just occasionally. So we see a little of Jesus being called a prophet, but I want to explain in a minute why I think it isn't often used of him. First, only those who, uh, often those who, who called Jesus a prophet knew very little about him. So when Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say, or who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. These are people who are just wondering now, who is Jesus? So they use the word, but they don't know a whole lot about him. Luke 7:16, fear seized them all, and these pe the people glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. These are just the crowds. They don't know too much about Jesus. Or John 4:19, the woman at the well at Samaria. She just met Jesus. She doesn't know much about who he is. He tells her, go call your husband. He says, she says, 
I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean she knew very much about him. It's just like you're one of the, like the prophets in the Old Testament. But there was an expectation that a prophet like Moses would come. And so it wasn't just a prophet, but when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, it's a great miracle. It's kind of like being Moses, where the people were fed with manna in the wilderness. Um, so Jesus multiplies the food to miraculously feed the people. And, and the people, when they see this sign, this miracle that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So now, see, they've got in mind, and they must have been taught, that what Moses predicted in the Old Testament was going to be fulfilled not just in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but some great prophet who was yet to come, the prophet who is to come into the world. They say, well, Jesus, th this must be the person because of these miracles. And in Acts 3, Peter, at the, uh, at the initiation of the early church, when he's giving this sermon explaining who Jesus is, he identifies Jesus with the prophet like Moses. So Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. Every soul does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And now Peter says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also, also proclaim these days. In other words, Moses is proclaiming these days. Samuel is proclaiming these days. These days are fulfilled in Jesus. So there he's identifying him with the prophet. But it's interesting that Jesus has never called a prophet in the New Testament epistles, in Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, um, Galatians, Ephesians, all those epistles, Jesus is never called a prophet. Why? It's interesting. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So you'd think Maybe the author would call Jesus a prophet, but he doesn't. He goes on, chapter 1, chapter 2, talking about the excellence of Jesus and how he's greater than all the Old Testament, the angels, the prophets. And then it says, Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, therefore, after chapters 1 and 2, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he could have called him prophet there. He could have said the prophet and high priest of our confession. But instead he calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. Interesting. Why? Why did the New Testament epistles avoid calling Jesus a prophet? In one sense, he was a prophet, but in another sense, I think they generally didn't call him that because he was so much greater than any other prophet. So much greater than any other prophet. See, um, he's the one about whom all the prophecies were made. He's the one to whom all these Old Testament predictions were looking. And really, he's, he's, he's a fulfillment about all those things, but he's more than a prophet. So Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and in the way the Jewish people spoke about the Old Testament, that would be, Moses would be the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, that was kind of a shorthand for all the rest of the books of the Bible, because even the historical books they thought were written in a way by prophets. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It all looked forward to him. 
And uh, same, in the same passage in Luke 24, Jesus told the disciples they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, showing it was necessary that the Christ or the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory. So all the prophets are pointing to him, but he's more than just a prophet. He's the fulfillment of all of that. In fact, Jesus was not merely a messenger of revelation from God like the other prophets, but he himself was the source of the revelation. And here I think we focus on the difference. When um, Isaiah would come and, and prophesy to the people, he'd say, thus says the Lord, and then he'd give the message that God had given him. Or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Joel, or any of these Old Testament prophets. Thus says the Lord. You see that again and again. And they're giving the message that the Lord gave to him. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I say unto you. Very interesting, isn't it? That's claiming a lot more authority. It's not saying, God has given me a message, and I, as a mere human being, am going to deliver that message. It's saying, I'm speaking God's words on my own authority. So, in a way, Jesus is, I think, claiming to be far greater than all the prophets that went before. He's not just a prophet. He's the source of revelation from God. He can say, I say unto you. I, I think that has relevance when we're talking about other religions like Islam uh, that would call Jesus a prophet or a great prophet. I think that's underestimating him. He's God himself. And he speaks as God and says, I say unto you. And those are the words of, uh, of our creator speaking to us. So that's Christ as prophet. He is a prophet, but that's not emphasized. That, that's the main point. You're with me on this? Okay? Not too confusing. Next, Christ is priest. Uh, and we're going to say the same thing, that Jesus is much greater than the Old Testament priests, but he fulfills it all, but he's often called a priest as well. Jesus, as a priest, offered the perfect sacrifice for sin, but he didn't offer uh, bulls or goats, animals, on the altar for sacrifice. He offered his own blood. Hebrews 10.4 says, thinking of the Old Testament, sacrifices that were still going on in Jerusalem. It's impossible. It's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Those sacrifices didn't really pay for sins. They were just a symbol. But as it is, Hebrews 9.26, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So you kind of think of all these Old Testament priests. They'd come up to this altar, a big altar of burnt offering. People would bring a goat or a lamb or something to sacrifice, and they'd kill it, and then they'd put it on this fire, and the fire would burn up. And then the priest sometimes would take some of the blood of the sacrifice and go into, the, once a year, go into the Holy of Holies and say, sprinkle that blood on the, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, uh, showing God that a life had been given. But that, and then the high priest would go back out, and then he'd have to do it again next year. Again and again and again, these sacrifices are being offered, and day after day they're being offered, but the people don't have access, full access to God. Now, it says here that Jesus didn't offer those animals anymore as sacrifice, but he came into the very presence of God in heaven, not the earthly copy of God's throne, but into the presence of God in heaven, and the sacrifice he brought was himself. It was his own life that he offered as a sacrifice uh, to pay for our sins. 
So he is a priest. And in fact, just as the priests in the Old Testament kind of, they represented the people before God, but, they, but the people just had to stay in the background. They couldn't really approach God's throne. Now Jesus, as a priest, <clears throat> does more. He goes into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and he says to us, come. And we are able to follow him there. So he brings us near to God. He leads us into God's presence. And that's why we don't need the Jerusalem temple anymore. Uh, we don't need to go to a temple and, and just offer worship there because always, in a spiritual sense, it is true that he brings us into the presence of God. So Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. And the readers are thinking, oh yeah, that's, that's the Jerusalem temple where we went every year to offer sacrifices. That was made with hands. Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. See, the Jerusalem temple was a copy of what's really in heaven. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In fact, he went into the heavenly equivalent of the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 6, 9 to, 19 to 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, because the, the curtain or the veil of the temple is torn in two, so there was open access into the Holy of Holies but in the heavenly one that was, that was the real one. A, a hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we have a far greater privilege than those believers in the Old Testament or those believers who lived in Israel at the time when Jesus was alive. They couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. They were excluded. They were kept out of the heart, the center of the temple, where, where God's presence was. And only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. But the book of Hebrews says we can go right there. And it's not the Jerusalem one, it's the real one in heaven. So Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that means the first room and the second room, the holy place and the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened... For us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So the veil of the temple, the curtain was torn in two, showing a sign that people could have access. But, it, but, but uh, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus' flesh, his body that was broken or torn, that was the real cause of the opening. And, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart. And this verb in Greek is a is, is a present uh, tense verb that indicates continual, repeated drawing near. It's like he's saying, let us draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near, keep on drawing near into the presence of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Uh, by Jesus' blood, his death, our conscience has been cleansed. We don't fear coming into God's presence. And our bodies washed with pure water. That's a symbol of cleansing the priests in the Old Testament. But now he's saying that's a cleansing spiritually that's happened to you in the New Testament. Go right into the presence of God because your conscience isn't guilty anymore. You don't need to fear. You've been washed and symbolically cleansed of your sin. You don't need to fear. Go right into God's presence and keep on doing it all the time. <clears throat> that's really what's behind our ability to pray. So we take it for granted, and from little childhood sometimes, we, you, can, you can pray to God, dear God, but we don't understand all that went on 
all that happened in order to gain us this access to God that we can so easily take for granted. It's that Jesus as great high priest opened the way for us. So he functions as a priest. Jesus as a priest, remember the priests represented the people to God. There's another function here. Jesus as priest continually prays for us. And so the high priest would have this ephod on, it'd have 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. And then it would have stones on his shoulders and the names of the six tribes on one, six tribes on the other. So he took the names of the tribes, Simeon, Reuben, uh, Issachar, Gad, Naphtali, Jacob, all these, or not Jacob, Joseph, uh, no, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, all these tribes, Benjamin, he'd take the names right into the presence of God. It's like he's bringing the people before God, but it's just representing them. They couldn't come themselves. But Jesus fulfills that because he brings us, uh, he, he, he brings us into God's presence, but he also, like the high priest, he prays for us. So Hebrews 7.25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them to make intercession for them. I want to come back to that word intercession in a minute. Romans 8:34, who condemned Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who was at God who indeed is interceding for us. Both cases, this word interceding based on a Greek word entukano. And when you look at that word in literature outside the New Testament, it it it's a word in Greek that was used when people would go before a king or the Jewish people might send an ambassador to the emperor to ask for certain privileges, or they might send an ambassador or representative to the governor and say, could we do this, could we do that? It's very much the idea of someone coming to a ruler or a superior and requesting things. And when we get that meaning, we see that Jesus is coming to the Father, doing that very thing, requesting things on our behalf. Now, some people, if you look at the commentaries on Hebrews 7 or Romans 8, they will say, oh, Jesus' intercession, it, it doesn't mean he's praying for us. It just means he stands there to show that he's paid for our sins. But I don't think that's a good uh, understanding of this word entunkano. Entunkano means to bring requests to someone in greater authority. And uh, when the author of Romans and the author of Hebrews use this word, I think they mean Jesus is making specific requests for us, praying for us. What is happening here is very interesting. We have Jesus as man and God. So in Christ we have a true man, a perfect man, praying, and thereby glorifying God through prayer. Thus human manhood is... His humanity is raised to a highly exalted position, being able to come and stay in God's presence. But also, if Jesus was just a man, he couldn't hear more than one person's prayer at a time. And he couldn't hear prayers of people who were thousands of miles away because human beings don't have that ability. So the high priests in the Old Testament, I mean, they, they could hear one person or another person's request, but as soon as two, you ever have two people talking to you at once? You, you, you can't, it, I mean, it just doesn't work. And three, it's impossible. Uh, but Jesus is more than a man. He's also God. And so he can hear the prayers of everybody simultaneously. 
in a way no human could possibly do. So 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And in reflecting on this, uh, I think it's right to say, therefore, we should not pray to Mary or to any other believers who have died, a saint something or other, and say, oh, would you please pray to God for me? Because Jesus is doing that, number one, but because they can't do that. They are finite created beings. Uh, uh, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, is honored in the Bible, honored for her, her faith and uh, for her role in, in bearing Jesus. Um, but, but she doesn't have the infinite capacity of God to hear any more than one person speaking at one time. And so um, we should focus on Jesus as our priest who prays for us. Um, and if he is our priest, then, again, we have the right to come before God. I, I guess also I, had, I, I didn't put it in the notes, and I thought I should add this in, but right back here where we say, see that um, Jesus as a priest brings us near to God, we don't need an earthly priest anymore either. And, it, and, it, and, if, and here I think I, I would differ, I think Protestants would differ with our Roman Catholic friends and say... No, we don't need an earthly priest to bring us to worship before God. We do that ourselves because we have Jesus as our great high priest. And so we can see that in the Old Testament, yes, they did need a priest. But that's not New Testament Christianity. That's an old system, and we shouldn't carry that over and say, well, we need priests to bring us into God's presence or pray to God for us anymore today. So that's just, that's just a difference. Um, so in Christ we have someone who is man and then he represents us as a man, but he's also God and he can represent all of us. Louis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology, written in the 1930s. Burkhoff was a professor at, at Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, a Christian Reformed a theologian and a widely respected author of this book, Systematic Theology. He has this paragraph I copied. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. Well, I almost put that in parentheses because I didn't want to encourage anybody to be negligent in their prayer life, uh, but I didn't want to be dishonest to the quotation either. So um, uh, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious, and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease, and that we may come out victoriously in the end. I thought that was encouraging. So Jesus as priest prays for us. Um, now, Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest. Sandy? Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for um, as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with mm -hmm. groanings which cannot be uttered. Yep. <laughs> um, I just, I, I was interested in 
just you're speaking what? to the role of, I mean, would it then be correct to say that uh, both the Son and the Spirit are praying for us? Yeah. Okay. People differ on the meaning of that verse. Okay. Some people say it's just like Jesus prays for us, so it's the Holy Spirit praying for us. And that's a possible meaning of it. I understand it differently. I think it means that the Holy Spirit takes our weak prayers and makes them effective. So, And, and the reason I do that is that word helps. The Spirit mm -hmm. helps us in our weakness. And the Greek word, huperentelkano, is related to that other word intercession. Mm -hmm. But um, no, huperentelkano, I can't. I think it's huperentelkano, but it yes. doesn't matter. Um, it's used of uh, when Martha says, Lord, tell my sister to come and help in the kitchen. So I think it means the spirit comes alongside us and we're, we're, we're kind of, oh, Lord, and we're just tired and we're weary and we don't know what to pray. We just say, Lord, Lord, help, help. And the Holy Spirit kind of takes that and all the burdens will make it into re genuine prayer. So I think that's what Romans 8 means. He makes our prayers more effective. But one way or the other, that's, yeah, it's good and it's important too, yeah. Uh, George Ann. Uh, would you please address, you said we should um, pray to Jesus. I, I've always been kind of torn about whether I'm supposed to pray to the Father or to Jesus. And then I, I think that when they asked Jesus how we were to pray, he said to pray to the Father. Mm -hmm. And so I've always gone by that. And, I, and I'm, I'm just interested in what you have to say about that. Yeah. Well, I think both are right, praying to the Father and praying to Jesus. In one sense, every time people came to Jesus and asked him something on earth, it's sort of like praying to him, asking him requests to heal or to do something. But also, there are times in the New Testament, you wouldn't expect, while Jesus is on earth, that you'd get prayers to him in heaven because he's still on earth. So you've got to look in the epistles, for examples, um, or in Acts. And in Acts, when Stephen is dying, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Or in Acts 1, when, they say, when they're choosing the disciple to replace Judas, and they narrow it down to two, and then they say, Lord, show which one of these two you have chosen. And the word Lord is used of Jesus normally in the New Testament. Um, and um, Maranatha, our Lord, come, is for Jesus to return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's a prayer for him to return. So there are some prayers to Jesus. Or I think when Paul says, I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would be removed from me, 2 Corinthians 12, that that word that name Lord is most often is almost uniformly applied to Jesus while the word God is applied to the Father in the New Testament. So I asked the Lord three times about this. I think that's Paul praying to Jesus, and and there's a larger argument, uh, Georgian, and that is we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In, in Hebrews two and four both says that. And I think that means that Jesus knows what we're going through. He understands because he's lived a life like ours. And so he's a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Well, we should be able to come to that high priest and talk to him then. So, okay, is that? Okay. Anything else on Jesus as high priest? Okay, yeah, and... <laughs> Where do the Catholics get the concept of praying to Mary and praying to the different saints? Is is it? It's not biblical. 
there's a different view of authority uh, between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And, Ro and Protestants, like us, say that our source of doctrine is the Bible alone. Um, and reason and history can help us, but we can't prove it unless it's in the Bible. But Catholics will say, well, it's Bible plus the tradition or historical teaching of the church, what's called the magisterium, teaching the church. And so it would come out of later developments in doctrine through the church. But where, where did they come up with it in their later developments? Okay. I mean, why? Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know in detail. Okay, and that's why I smiled when I heard you what you were going to say. I, um, as long as I open up the questions, I get two or three I can answer, and then I've got to do an I don't know one, and this is an I don't know one. Okay, um, and the, the source to look in that would be um, Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official teaching of the Catholic Church, and it's about a $40, $30, $40 volume, and it's really easy to understand. It's written you know, in lay people's language. And um, if I had it on my shelf, if I had it here, I'd just pull it out and look, but I don't. I don't. And they'll, they'll make reference to some verses in the Bible sometimes, but um, like about Mary being honored or something like that. But uh, more, it's a more reasoning kind of thing. If she was honored and she was the mother of God, then doesn't she understand what Jesus was going through? And doesn't she understand our struggle? And then wouldn't it be sensible to pray to her? That kind of reasoning. So, Okay, so now um, Christ as king. Oh, got more. Here we go. Sorry. What's your name? Sorry, my name's Eric. Hi, Eric. Hi. Um, something you just you said a little bit ago led me back to you know a question I struggle with a lot. When you said um, obviously Jesus went through what everything we've gone through yep, and he, yep. he understands where we're coming from. So I I guess the the question I struggle with is is the implication that that God the Father does not um, or if you could kind of help me out with that a little bit. <laughs> this is Dave a hard question. <laughs> Um, well, this verse in Hebrews has to mean something. <laughs> oh yes, it has to mean something. No, I, that, I just that sounded kind of stupid, but it does have to mean something. Um, it's Hebrews two seventeen um, and eighteen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be like us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, here's the sentence. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to, un to help those who are tempted. It's because he suffered, he's able to give some more kind of help. He understands more by experience, I guess that means. And then, and then Hebrews 4 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, um, he is, he's, so he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I think that means that somehow Jesus is able to understand by experience in a way that the Father does not understand. And maybe, maybe an analogy is... A woman who becomes um, an obstetrician gynecologist and she knows medically everything there is to know about having a baby, but she hasn't had a baby herself, and then she has a baby. I, I, now, I don't have that experience, but, but my guess is we would all say she knows more about what it is to have a baby after she had the baby. 
than, than with her medical knowledge. And so maybe that's something of an analogy that going through an experience of something teaches you in a different way. And I think that Jesus remembers what it was like to be tired, to be weary, to have people accusing him and attacking him, to have to earn money to support his family because he was the oldest son and his father died and all that. And so when we go to him, he's a sympathetic high priest, he says. I, I mean, and it, you know, if God is omniscient, doesn't he know? Yeah, he knows, but, the, but that verse has to mean something. Because he suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So that's the best I can do. E.G.? Um, kind of a question in this area. <clears throat> Uh, God is God, and Jesus is God, but he is also human. Yep. And he, as a human, I would think, could have experiences that God would not have. Yep, yep. And so yep. that's the element that what, how Jesus is different than God in yep. that he can feel as a human. Yeah, good. That, so you're saying it in a more clear way than I was kind of wandering around the bush, but yeah, is that I what agree completely. Okay. It's good. Yeah. Okay. All right. One more, and then we're going to go on. Here's a microphone coming. I wonder if we might be falling into the trap of thinking that because God is manifesting himself in three persons, he has somehow stripped each of the individual persons of. Um, components of the entirety of the Godhead. Did so, not. No. All the attributes of God belong to all three persons of the Trinity equally. And I would propose, therefore, that God the Father can identify with my temptation to the same degree. Um, that is, he's not stripped of that um, that understanding, that experience, uh, just because he's to manifest himself in three persons. Yeah. What's your name? Mike. Mike, that's a good question. My response, Mike, would be the ability to know by experience what human life is like is not one of the attributes of God. So God the Father never had it. He knew, He knows from a distance, but he doesn't know by experience. And Jesus knows by experience. So, so the, and the reason I'm doing that is I said this verse has to mean something. Because he suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He is able. Because he is able. So there's an ability that Jesus didn't didn't have, and it's it's baffling to us in a way. But then I guess by analogy we can understand a little bit. That's all. Is that okay? <laughs> okay, good. All right. So now Christ as King. Christ as King. In the Old Testament, the King had authority over the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus was born to be king of the Jews, yet he refused any attempt by people to make him an earthly king. And here it's a matter of timing. They want to force him to be king. They want to get rid of these Romans who are taxing them and oppressing them and punishing them. And, and, um, but Jesus resists that because it's not the time when he's coming to be king. He's priest. And he's more than a prophet but he's going to come as king later. So John 6:15, the people see these miracles that Jesus is doing. They say, ah, this is our king. Let's, let's, let's put him on our shoulders and carry him into Jerusalem, and he'll lead us, and we'll defeat all the Roman armies, and we'll be free. 
So John 6:15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He wasn't going to have any part of that at that time. John 18:36, when Jesus is on trial before his death, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So he's a king, but he's saying, it's a different kind of kingdom right now, and you don't understand it yet. It's a kingdom not of this world, yet he is king. Jesus did have a kingdom whose arrival he announced in his preaching. He is, in fact, the true king of the new people of, of God. So Matthew 4, 17 from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And sometimes it's called kingdom of heaven, sometimes kingdom of God. But it's, it's God's reign. But it's, it's not a kingdom like uh, Caesar, uh, the Roman emperor. It's not a kingdom like, um, uh, one, of the, like uh, one of the earthly kings in the ancient world or even today an earthly ruler. It's not that kind of king. It's a kingdom of heaven. It's God ruling in people's hearts. And then as God rules in people's hearts, they're subject to him, they begin to obey him, and their lives begin to look like God wants them, wants them to look. And so the kingdom of God spreads in a kind of an, it's almost invisible way. You see the signs of it, you see the results of it in people's lives, but you don't, you don't see um, sort of angels standing around at street corners directing traffic. It's not that kind of kingdom, uh, not yet. And so uh, Matthew 21.5, when he, uh, getting ready to come into to Jerusalem, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So he is coming, and he, he at that moment gives a foreshadowing of the fact that he is going to come to Jerusalem and reign as king, and he's riding in, and he, he lets the people acknowledge him just a few days before he is crucified. But it's a different kind of kingdom. So Luke 19:38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were right, but it wasn't the time to come as an earthly king in the way they understood. John 1, 49, Nathaniel, Rab, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. You are the true David. You're the true son of David. You're the fulfillment of the promise of God to David that a son would reign over the people of God uh, forever. Um, so he fulfills it, but in, in parts. After his resurrection, G now, king has authority, right? So in order to be a king, you have to reign. So after the resurrection, Jesus was given by God the Father far greater authority over the church and over the universe. Ephesians 1, 19 to 22, God raised him up. Who's the him? Who's him? Jesus. God raised Jesus up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Whoa, what kind of king is this? This is greater than Caesar Augustus, greater than the emperor... Um, Tiberius or Nero to come, greater than any earthly king, greater than Nebuchadnezzar, right? Greater than any earthly king. He raised him up far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And so there is authority given to Jesus, but it isn't. he hasn't come to earth and exercised it all yet. It's just partially exercised. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Heaven and earth, that's, that's a kingship. That's a greater kingship than any that had existed. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul is saying he is in heaven, he is reigning, he is working out his purposes on the earth, but you need the eyes of faith to see that because you don't always see it amidst the uh, uh, strife and the struggles on the earth. 
Jesus then will someday take up that kingship in greater power. He will come to earth in power and great glory to reign. And so when, uh, when he was on trial and he was asked, are you a king? He said, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, and that's a way of affirming that what you said was true. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. If we trace that phrase, Son of Man, in connection with clouds of heaven, we trace that back into the Old Testament, it's a clear echo of Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where one comes before the, God the Father, comes before the Ancient of Days, and, and he is given uh, power and dominion over all nations eternally. So when Jesus says, I'm going to be the son, I, son of Man, he called himself about 90 times in the Gospels. And so when he says, you're going to see the Son of Man, he means you're going to see me as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying, you're going to see me return and I'm going to be that son of man that was predicted in Daniel. And that means God the Father has given me authority over the whole world, over all nations, and it's going to last forever. Now, what kind of kingship is that? That's the greatest kingship that there can be. That's why he can be called king of kings. So he is going to reign eternally and universally as king. Philippians 2.10, Paul says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, he, and he's going to reign forever and ever. So Jesus is King. And... Okay, I got, is an answer a question I can answer? So, uh, <laughs> uh, when did the you say it again? When did the Jews stop having literal kings and literal sacrifices? Was it after the temple burned? Okay, kings 586 BC carried off into exile in Babylon. They came back from exile and they had Ezra and Nehemiah, but no more kings. I don't think there are any kings after after the Babylonian exile. Hmm? 586, 586 B.C., they were carried off into exile. They came back, and you get Ezra, Nehemiah, where they're rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple. And you get Esther. Esther is exalted to be queen with Ahasuerus, king over Persia, but, but that's not a Jewish king. Okay? And then, um, and then the, the sacrifices ended in 70 A.D. After Jesus died, the Romans came and destroyed the temple. And there were no more sacrifices there was, because they couldn't. They needed the temple to offer sacrifices, and there were no more offered. You know that's God's provision, though. I think. See, there are no more kings. Ah, there's a greater king coming. And there are no more priests. Ah, because Jesus has fulfilled the priesthood. We don't need those priests anymore. Good. Yeah. What's your name in back? Say it again. It's Brian. Brian. Yeah, I've, I think I've met you before, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah at the beginning of the class, you yeah. asked me to. Yeah, but the chair, yeah, yeah you were doing out. a lot of chair set up here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you have up there revelations, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, in the New Testament, that titleship Lord seems to be tr attributed to Jesus, yep. where God uh, is attributed to the Father. Yep. But in the Old Testament, God the Father or, or God seems to have the title of Lord as well. Yep. And, uh I guess my question is, why was that title kind of transferred to Jesus? And the reason why I ask is I'm thinking back on some of the conversations I've had with Jehovah's Witnesses who would kind of, I would think they would look at that and say, well, see, he's Lord, but he's not necessarily our God. Yeah. And so I'm kind of curious. 
Yep. Um, I think often in the Old Testament the words God and Lord are used of the Trinity or of the whole the whole of God without distinction and sometimes may be used of the Father and the Son but that we don't understand how they sort out. And you're right, sometimes the title Lord Jehovah or Yahweh is used of God the Father too. It's a little and the reason it's unclear is that the doctrine of the Trinity is just really vaguely hinted at just in a few verses in the Old Testament. It's not revealed. In the New Testament, we get much more clarity. And so there's, there's a difference. But in talking of the Jehovah's Witnesses, this word Lord in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus, oh, I forgot, 260 times or something in a strong way of, of Lord, uh, like Lord God. And that word, the Greek word kurios, that that translates, that's used, if I can remember, I think it's like 6,880 times in the Greek Old Testament to refer to God. So when the New Testament calls Jesus Lord 250, 260 times and uses the, word, the name of God in the Old Testament to apply to Jesus, I think that's pretty strong evidence for Jesus' deity too, which Jehovah's Witnesses don't, I think, really have an answer for. Okay, so Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, but more than a prophet, he speaks the very words of God in the New Testament, in his teachings. And then he authorizes his disciples to write the rest of the New Testament, which um, is really on his authority as well. Priest offers a sacrifice for us, but it's himself. It's the perfect sacrifice, and it ends all sacrifices, and they aren't necessary anymore. And then he brings us into God's presence. And he can understand us and sympathize with our weaknesses. And he encourages us to talk to him as our high priest who cares for us and understands us. And then as king, reigning in heaven now and over all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and over the earth now so that he will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. His plans are not going to be frustrated. Um, I don't know if Iran's going to get a nuclear weapon or not. I don't know if they're going to set it off or not. I don't know if we're going to have more terrorist attacks in the United States or not. What I do know is the result is assured. And the result is that Jesus is going to build his church, and it's not going to be defeated. And he's going to come back, He's going to take all his people to himself, and he's going to reign over the earth. He's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And I believe he's going to reign from Jerusalem as a perfect king, showing what perfect government and perfect peace is like. And then he'll be worshipped forever and ever. And Iran and the terrorists and Al-Qaeda and all that will be long forgotten. We'll be with him forever. King of kings and Lord of lords, he will reign. I uh, look at my watch and I see I got through exactly half of my outline this morning. <laughs> um, why don't we take about two more minutes or three and see if you have questions and then I, I have, um, maybe try this hymn that I have at the end. And I'll just have to come back to this, our roles at pro as prophet, priest, and king, because 
there's tremendous richness here now to see how the Lord calls us in a subsidiary way to have, fulfill these roles. Intended it for Adam. And then fulfilled somewhat in our life now and in the future even more. Under Christ, we'll be prophet, priests, and kings. Oh yeah, I thought of one more thing. In human government, it's the failure to recognize that kingship was abolished when Jesus came that led to monarchies. People thought there was a divine right of kings and we should have kings rule over governments for many, many countries and many centuries. And I think it was a wrongful application of the Old Testament system to, to the modern world. Just like saying we have to have a priest to represent us today is a wrongful application of the Old Testament system to the modern world. So um, that's just one other comment. John? What do you think of democracy? <laughs> oh, I'm going to love to answer this question. <laughs> Where did democracy come in? Where did democracy come in? Enroll in Theology 572, A Biblical Theology of Law, Politics, and Government. <laughs> and we'll talk about it. Uh, but historically, um, the idea that there could be freedom of religion and the idea of uh, government deriving its just powers from the consent of the governed, the Declaration of Independence, um, that's new with the founding of America. Or at least there were some hints of it in, Swiss, uh, in Switzerland earlier and in Greek democracies, but nothing like it on a national level uh, that, uh, until the founding of the United States. So, Yeah, good. Mike again? For the Israelites to have a prophet, priest, and king, this reminds me that today I am not autonomous. I need today a prophet, priest, and king. Where would we be without our Lord? Yeah. So our need today is identical to the need of God's people 3,000, 5,000 oh, years ago. Good. Okay, good. Okay, good. Let, let me just feed that back and say, just imagine that you're not a believer. You don't have the Bible. And you think there's a God, but you don't know what God's words are because you don't have any prophet to tell you. You don't know how to get to God because you have no priest to show you the way. And, King, you don't have any confidence that God's rule will turn out right, I guess, because you're not sure that there is a king who's going to rule. Yeah, so good. Okay, let's, um, we got one more here, um, Beth. Yeah. Go ahead, try again. On Hebrew 2.17, mm -hmm. could it not mean that he can better relate to us because he was human, but it gives us a better re ability to relate to him and God, more ability to reach to him because we feel like he can relate to us because yep. he was before us. At least that's true. That's absolutely true. It gives us more encouragement. But see... If I look at the thing of that verse, because he suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And when I say he is able, that means there's an ability that I think he didn't have before. And I just I want to say that verse is true, but I, I it's it's hard, but I think it has to mean something. Let's see if we can sing that. I thought after this word, this uh, song may be too hard to sing, but uh, let's try it, and we're dismissed.